Welcome to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about how emergency rental assistance is still only trickling down as the eviction moratorium draws to a close yet again. Also going to be talking about media complicity, uh, complicity rather, in spreading the Wuhan lab leak conspiracy. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. I am not going to stand up to show pride in a flag for a country that oppresses black people and people of color. To me, this is bigger than football, and it would be selfish on my part to look the other way. There are bodies in the street and people are getting paid leave and getting away with murder. That's what Colin Kaepernick said when sports journalists interviewed him about sitting during the national anthem while quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers on August 26, 2017. It was the first time during that preseason that Kaepernick's sitting during the anthem received any widespread attention since he had already been sitting during the anthem for other preseason games. Kaepernick held a press conference two days later and explained further. He said, we have a lot of people that are oppressed. We have a lot of people that aren't treated equally, aren't even given equal opportunities. Police brutality is a huge thing that needs to be addressed. There are a lot of issues that need to be talked about, need to be brought to life, and we need to fix those. Well, you know what happened. Largely white sports fans didn't want that black guy talking about black people problems interfering with their sacred pastime with all its nationalistic, militarized, scantily clad cheerleader, provocative dancing family wholesomeness. Other players, former players, coaches, team owners, sports media, corporate media, and of course, politicians all piled on the hate Kaepernick bandwagon, which grew in intensity and passengers as the 2016 season wore on. And this is when Trump made his infamously racist and hateful comment about NFL players who refused to stand for the anthem, encouraging owners to fire them. And no, I'm not going to repeat that hateful thing he said. You remember what it was. But Kaepernick didn't stop. He had a conversation with former Green Beret Nate Boyer, who reached out to him and advised Kaepernick to take a knee instead of sit during the national anthem as an act of respect toward the people in the military. So Kaepernick began to kneel, as did other players like Eric Reed and Michael Bennett and others in the NFL and amateur and professional athletes across the sports world, even in high school. Kaepernick went further, responding to the rising chorus of angry, mostly white Americans claiming that he was privileged and he just wanted attention by donating one million dollars of his salary to organizations that focused on criminal justice reform and police accountability. But because of the backlash against his protest, Colin Kaepernick, the quarterback who threw for 302 yards, completed a pass for a touchdown and ran for a touchdown himself. In the 49ers' narrow loss, I mean by three points, to the Baltimore Ravens in the 2013 Super Bowl, by 2017, just a year after he began his protest, he was unable to find a team willing to sign him. 
Talk of collusion rose among those who looked upon the actions of the NFL suspiciously during the whole saga, and Kaepernick and Eric Reed filed a grievance with the NFL, accusing the league of blackballing Kaepernick. The grievance was settled in 2019, and the agreement and findings remain confidential. And you know why the findings are confidential, right? Because the league absolutely did collude to blackball Kaepernick and punish players who joined him. Underwhelming Tim Tebow, with a 47.9 passing rating during his career from 2010 to 2012, was dragged out of retirement by his former college coach, Urban Meyer, to play one crappy preseason as tight end, not even as quarterback, with the Jacksonville Jaguars, from which Tebow was summarily cut before the regular season started just a few days ago. But Colin Kaepernick, with a 59.8% completion rate during his 2011 to 2016 career, all with the same team, he can't even get a phone call. If you think the NFL owners and league management didn't collude to blackball Kaepernick, you're probably one of the people claiming that he was a bad quarterback and doesn't deserve to play. He deserves a shot far more than the one Tim Tebow got, who also knelt during games, mind you, but it was to thank the Lord. So folks were fine with players kneeling as long as they were, you know, white, and as long as they were doing it to fulfill a completely selfish personal belief kneel so that the Lord can save people. And black and brown and poor kids are still living in poverty and living in occupied territories in this country, terrorized by police, but y'all gonna pray for that. That's that's what the kneeling for the Lord does. Y'all gonna let the Lord fix it because that's all most in this country will ever do about these issues that Colin Kaepernick raised. And I think with the confluence of events that occurred during this time, the nationwide Black Lives Matter protests, the highlighting of police violence against Black, Latinx, Indigenous, and poor white people, the economic calamity millions endured because of the lack of government response to the coronavirus that prioritized business and profit over people's need, the nationwide reckoning of just why these monuments to white supremacist genocidaires should be venerated or even tolerated still. And just what is the second verse of the national anthem that we don't even sing? All of those things coming together at one time in this country laid the foundation for where we are now. An intense period of struggle with a government that responds to the desperate economic and racial oppression of millions with window dressing policies and scripted speeches full of empty platitudes, absolutely. But this is also an equally intense period of public awakening and anger at these conditions and responses. And this is fertile ground for the kind of organizing that is needed to grow the people's movement that can change this entire system. Kaepernick's protest wasn't a sports thing that happened five years ago today. I think it's an important milestone in the history of struggle from the continued fight for labor rights, ending U.S. imperialist wars to the demand to cancel the rents. It's an important part in the history of struggle that we are continuing to make. Follow Luke Mon Nation on Patreon.com slash Luke Mon Nation for lots of great content. Yeah. And, you know, Jackie, thinking about Colin Kaepernick's kneeling protest. And just the shockwaves that it sent, not only through the world of sports, but through popular culture 
in the United States. And why was that? Why was there such a response from this country? This was one man doing this protest, right? And so is it the individual? Is it the act? Or is it the symbology and the sort of substance of what Kaepernick was trying to communicate with that kneeling protest? I mean, it seems that that's obviously what it is. I mean, the audacity of someone with Kaepernick's platform and of his prominence to do something like that. It's openly declared to challenge, frankly, the hypocrisy of reverence and pledging allegiance to this flag that represents slavery, that represents genocide, that represents uh, white supremacist, capitalist oppression. That is what people were responding to when it came to Kaepernick's demonstration. So then it became bigger than just one man. It became a a, a statement that was very much in line with the movement against racist police terror that inspired Kaepernick to begin with. This is how movement inspires culture. And what have we seen in the time since? In the same way, I would argue, in the same way that the coronavirus pandemic intensified the George Floyd protests last summer, I think it also sort of helped stoke the consciousness of our athletes and making them feel compelled to respond in their own way, whether it's kneeling, whether it's, you know, wearing T-shirts, whether it's, you know, speaking out publicly or on social media or what have you. I mean, we're seeing the ripple effects of Kaepernick's demonstration. But like I'm saying, that taking a knee didn't happen in a vacuum, right? It happened as a result of the influence of a movement. And it's important, I think, that we recognize that because it shows how the movement for black lives has so pierced the mainstream consciousness here in the United States. No matter how it is, tr- it is uh, there have been attempts to beat it back by Democrats, by Republicans, by the ruling class, by those who actually have a stake in racist policing carrying on the way it does. It has persevered through that and in the time of George Floyd's killing has taken on a whole new kind of energy that continues to this very day and has become intertwined with the issue of the pandemic and with housing and with hunger and with unemployment and all these sorts of things. And so it evidences just again that All the different forms of exploitation that happen under this capitalist system, this white supremacist system, they're all connected because they all have the same root. And all it says to me, Jackie, is that we need to be 
more intentional and more purposeful, more diligent, more disciplined, and more clear about not only how this is the root of all our problems, but how we have to organize and build and strengthen relationships against each other to critically attack both the issue at hand and the system that creates the problem. Because whether we're talking about racist police terror, housing, or what have you, we know that ultimately capitalism is the culprit. We'll be right back here on By Any Means Necessary. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the rental assistance that's going on in the U.S. as the eviction moratorium winds to an end. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation by Will Merrifield, a housing attorney in Washington, D.C. Will, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me, Sean. Absolutely. And, Will, it's being reported that of the $46.5 billion in rental aid assistance that's uh, been made available, about 89% of it has not been distributed. And and I'm speaking specifically of the Emergency Rental uh, uh, Assistance Program. And uh, in July, only about $1.7 billion were distributed by uh, state and local governments. And according to reports uh, of the roughly 2.8 million households that have applied for aid, 2.8 million households, only about 500,000 have reported actually getting some assistance with one and a half million waiting for approval with nearly 700,000 that have been rejected. And I mean, this is just, I mean, it's hard to feel like it's uh, anything but criminal really, um, Will, that there's all this money that's available in a time such as this where people are reeling from the economic impacts of the coronavirus pandemic and what that's meant for their um, ability to do something as simple as pay rent, something that should be as simple, perhaps, I should say. And um, the fact that so little of this money seems to have uh, trickled down. Now, um, the end of the federal moratorium is coming up, I believe, on October 3rd. I think here in D.C., it actually goes until October 12th. I mean, either way, it just seems that here shortly, uh, yet again, you know, this is not the first time that this situation has come up since the beginning of the pandemic. There are a lot of people who will be put in a very uh, precarious and vulnerable situation as regards their housing, seemingly just because these important resources just haven't been made available. And it's just hard to imagine why that is. Yeah, I mean, it is hard to imagine why, Sean. And I think that what this rental assistance Um, You know, the problem with getting this rental assistance out is part of a bigger problem. We saw this 
same problem with, you know, getting unemployment uh, benefits out. And I think what it what it what it is is that it's been decades of you know privatization and neoliberalism in our federal and local governments and the inability to do basic tasks that a functioning government should be able to do which is get this money out that's desperately needed by people to avoid a public health crisis um that will occur if you know, people can't stay in their homes past this eviction moratorium. So it really is, you know, a a a damning, you know, um, aspect of of our uh, the way our our government works for working class people. You know, I worked previously at the Washington Legal Clinic for the homeless, and what you saw is constantly people trying to access benefits that they are eligible for and an assumption that, you know, people are somehow trying to game the system and a a reluctance to actually have government function for the benefit of, you know, the many. Um, right now, you know, the way our government functions is it functions for the business class and it works very well for them. It doesn't work too well for, you know, average working class people. And when something like this eviction, you know, when we're on the precipice of these mass evictions, that really becomes, you know, put into clear focus of how, how, how ineffective our government is to actually serve working class people. Yeah. And will the Treasury Department and the White House, you know, they acknowledge uh, and did acknowledge on a conference call Tuesday that the program wasn't ramping up fast enough to entirely prevent a wave of evictions. I mean, I, I guess it's nice that they, you know, admitted the obvious, even if the justices allowed the eviction moratorium to remain in place until uh, the scheduled expiration on October 2nd. But they put the focus, the blame uh, of the program struggles on local officials who they say are, mm-hmm. are reluctant to take advantage of the new fast track application process because that process allows tenants to self certify on applications and it doesn't require them to provide all of this detailed documentation. What are your thoughts about that? I mean, that sounds like an issue that is uh, linked to the fact that a lot of these states that are not participating in this program are red states. But is it just a red state uh, led, blue state led kind of issue where state governments are not taking a part in this program because they don't like the fact that they just have to give people this money as opposed to collecting all this information from them that they could do something else with? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I I would argue it's not so much red state, blue state. It's more of, you know, a dysfunction in government and a a ideology amongst government officials on both sides of the aisle that people, you know, are that working class people are takers as opposed to people who should be served by their government and that government's purpose is to act in the broad, you know, benefit to protect the public health of community. And I think that there is a breakdown on both sides of the aisle. Um, with respect to that, I mean, you know, it, 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 there just is this process of, 
of of not of government not working for everyday people. Let me give you an example. Washington D.C. Um, you know, when we think about getting money out to you know help people who are about to be evicted in Washington D.C., um, there's a project called the Wharf, which is a bunch of luxury developments on the Southwest waterfront, has a bunch of trophy offices, high-end restaurants, and it has, uh, you know, luxury apartments and condos. One of those condos is selling for over $12 million. They're selling a penthouse condo at the wharf for over $12 million. Now, in order for that developer to be selling a condo for over $12 million, the, the process which started that all was the local government of Washington, D.C., a Democratic local government, giving that developer $280 million worth of land for $1. That developer then parlayed that $1 of that free land into an $875 billion loan from Goldman Sachs, so almost a billion, or I'm sorry, an $875 million loan. So almost a billion dollar loan from Goldman Sachs. Then the government worked to help tear down affordable housing in that neighborhood. So these luxury apartments could be there. Once these luxury apartments, once that initial investment from Goldman Sachs was made in that neighborhood, it drove up the land values in that neighborhood exponentially. A bunch of other global investors then came in, bought up all the land, and they built more luxury apartments in that neighborhood. And it drove up rents exponentially. So the underlying problem, I mean, the eviction moratorium and the evictions, this has been highlighted because of this global pandemic. We're on the precipice of this, these mass evictions. But these policies that lead to, you know, the potential disaster, which is the eviction moratorium ending, and the inability of the government to function for the broad masses of people, they're born in the type of example that I just gave. Government works for global capital. It works for large-scale development firms. They get these local leaders elected, whether that's in a red state or a blue state. And once these people are in office, they do not govern in a way that, you know, (laughs) protects people and is for the public interest. And what that manifests itself in is the inability to perform which should be a very basic task, which is designing and implementing a simple program to get money out to people who are at risk of eviction. They just can't do it. And it it baffles people, but it's not a priority for local government officials, for government officials to design programs that are easy to access and they get this money out. Um, And I mean, that's the best sort of explanation I can give as a person who's dealt with both the local and federal government on, you know, housing issues for the past decade. It's extremely frustrating and it it doesn't make sense. But I think that, like I said, in the end, it's born out of priorities.
Definitely. And I mean, you know, people in D.C. are very aware of like this whole uh, this wharf area that, that you're describing. Well, and I mean, you know, I've been down there and it's just what you describe. It's very glitzy, very nice, very built up. You got the water back there. It's families. People are hanging out. It's cool. And but you talk about the effect that it has in terms of driving up rents, which, of course, is a big part of, you know, displacing longtime residents and uh, uh, all these sorts of things. And, and, and it's these kinds of processes. Processes, and I know you've seen this um, over your time uh, being active, that um, it, it's these sorts of things that make D.C. increasingly an unaffordable place to live. And I really think, Will, that, that it's part of a broader issue of this country, like the United States, becoming less and less affordable for working people. I mean, back in July, there was a a report from the National Income Housing Coalition that found that uh, people who work full time on a minimum wage can afford a one bedroom rental unit in only 7% of all counties in the United States, only 7%. So we're talking about the cost of living skyrocketing while uh, uh, overall wages have uh, basically stagnated. And so there's going to be a real social fallout from that. And this is something that was already sort of developing. And I think that the whole housing issue is just one of many that was uh, exacerbated by the coronavirus pandemic. I know here in D.C., there's already a serious issue around affordable housing. I mean, I, I would go so far as to say that affordable housing basically doesn't exist in uh, uh, Washington, D.C. to the to the extent that, I mean, it can be found, but it's not widespread. It's not programmatic. It's not something that's promoted and it's definitely not supported um, by the local government. And so D.C. and so many places across the country um, are sort of becoming havens for the wealthy, cities for the wealthy or the affluent. And I think this is why, as we've been pointing out on the show, is that um, the issue of homelessness is visibly becoming more and more intense. And and I think there's a direct connection to that. And this whole eviction moratorium piece um, that we're talking about here, Will, because like you say, if it was a priority to house people, because that's how you fight homelessness, by giving people places to live, just like you fight poverty by giving people money. If that was a real priority, then there would be no issue. Uh, particularly yeah, with, out. go ahead. Yeah. And, and uh, we know that, you know, in places like DC and, and other parts of the U S there's so much housing that just sits around empty. And so it's just very clear about what is the priority in uh, this issue of housing. And it's not human beings who need places to live. It's, you know, the profits of these wealthy developers and these relationships that they build with uh, uh, folks in power in office. For, sh- for sure, man. I mean, I think that is the nail on the head that explains, you know, why, like I said, a simple program can't get rolled out, can't get funded effectively. To understand why that can't happen, you have to understand that housing policy in the United States is not meant to house people. Housing policy at the local and federal level is not meant to house people. Housing policy in the United States, the local and federal level, is meant to maximize profits for investors that are investing in these 
various types of housing. And increasingly, in the coastal cities in the United States, what is being invested in is luxury housing. So it looks different in different parts of the country. In, in coastal areas, it's luxury housing that's being invested in. And in you know places like the Midwest, I'm from Ohio, there's, you know, like BlackRock is buying up entire towns and actually driving up the cost of single-family homes so that people can't afford to actually buy a single-family home. And they're, so they're artificially raising the prices of these single-family homes so that people can't buy and that they have to become forever renters. And this is what global investment, what sovereign funds are investing in is these streams of rent to, to, to disallow people to be able to own, keep people renters, and, you know, have these giant financial behemoths own all these properties and all this land. And, you know, it's, um, it's a very, um, for, for them, it, you know, for these, for these giant financial machines, it's a really logical uh, step after the 2008 financial crisis, you know, when many people were evicted from their homes, they saw one of the largest transfers of wealth from the 99% to the 1%. And we saw banks get a hold of properties, you know, and own properties that people, that individuals used to own as homeowners. So this is the move for global capital, for, you know, financial systems. And it's, it's much bigger than these local government officials. These local government officials are, are really pawns in that larger game of global investment, global capital. And like I said, because they're pawns and the policy is meant to maximize returns for these investors, they can't do simple things when it, when it comes to, okay, how do you roll out a effective government program to get this free money out to people? And it baffles, you know, it just baffles people's minds. I know I'm repeating myself, but it's because it's not what these local officials do. It's not what they have been elected for. They've been elected to serve the interests of, you know, their business partners. And they're, they're basically low-level functionaries, low-level employees of these businesses, which means they don't govern well. And like Jackie said, I think there's also, and I think this is much more on the, on the red side of things, there is this, you know, idiotic um, ideology against giving, you know, working-class people uh, a benefit because of a global pandemic, but those same individuals in those red states will give, you know, their corporate, you know, partners um, all kind of public benefits. And that's really, you know, socialism for the wealthy, austerity for the poor in the United States. So I think, you know, it's sort of a multitude of issues, but it all goes back to priorities and, you know, the the inability of a, a really a, a breakdown in our both federal and local governments and their ability as governments to actually govern, to actually build strong public institutions, to roll money out. You know, Sean, there was, I, on my Twitter feed, on local DC Twitter feed, 
right before school is about to start, um, you know, with the need for good ventilation systems in these schools as kids go back to school, you know, still in the midst of this pandemic, there's a bunch of HVACs out in D.C. public schools. You know, it's going to be 100 degrees. There's going to be kids going back to school, and they don't have functioning HVAC systems in a lot of primarily black, low-income neighborhoods. And, you know, people are going crazy because they're saying, how can you not have, you know, make sure that the air conditioning is functioning in these schools when kids are going to go back? But again, it's just a breakdown in local government and these government officials to effectively oversee the agencies that they had and make sure that the basic functions of public institutions, public schools, are are being adhered to and are, are operating effectively. And it's extremely frustrating, but it is what we're going to have to live with until, you know, we start movement building and creating spaces for, for people who actually want to govern and for, you know, people who are interested in building strong public institutions, being able to build strong gover- governing apparatuses so that when a program like ADC, which is, you know, the local program that is distributing the federal money, when you when, when, when we have an urgency to get this money out, then it rolls out, you know, that we have the ability to roll this stuff out and it's seamless. And I mean, that, that's, you know, that's the, the only explanation I can give to why something seemingly so simple, giving away free money to renters who are about to be evicted, why it can't happen. Yeah. And, you know, the last thing I wanted to touch on, Will, because I think you used the magic word there when you talked about movement building. And one thing that I've been seeing since, um, you know, Cori Bush staged her sit in at the Capitol. I mean, even from that action, there were groups that sort of uh, sprang up in response to this out of a desire to keep organizing around the issue, even as the uh, moratorium uh, was extended. And we're hearing again, sort of renewed calls for canceling the rent and things like this. And so, you know, having a look at the systemic breakdown of of how this really works and how this is the system working. It's not it's not broken, that it is literally the function of it to discard humanity for the sake of profit. And so it, it seems then, Will, that really this kind of, uh, you know, grassroots on the, you know, boots on the ground type of organizing and community building is really what's going to make um, all the difference, as clearly this is not an issue that's going anywhere anytime soon. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. And I think that what's really important for movements is to be able to, you know, make the jump or, you know, pivot from the, the concept of cancel rent, which is, you know, something that needs to be done. It's what we've been talking about for the last however many minutes to really uh, starting to rally around forms of if it comes to when, when it's something like housing rallying around forms of decommodification of housing. So rallying around forms of housing that eliminate what is a inefficiency in, in our housing market. The inefficiency in our housing market is the profit motive. So if we can rally around forms of housing that eliminate the profit motive for developers and have 
you know, the ability of people to live in places where their rent is being invested back into their building. A portion of it, a portion of it doesn't have to be taken by a developer for him to profit off of, for him to offshore that money. So that money is never seen again, never recycled back in the local economy. But instead, if people's rents are being reinvested 100% back into their buildings, we can create a self-sustainable housing model that operates with maximum you know, economic efficiency and would create much more affordable rents for people. And what I just described is is a cooperative. And there's cooperatives all over Washington, D.C. And that is the sort of housing that we need to move towards, the sort of housing we need to invest in, and the sort of housing that governments, local governments like Washington, D.C., that has a $17.5 billion budget, these local governments can start building this type of housing in scale so that, you know, that $280 million worth of land that they give to a developer, you know, that land could have, the wharf could be social housing and it could still have a bunch of cool stuff down there. It would just be a housing model that, you know, is decommodified. And, you know, all the, you could still have the anthem, you know, a music venue there, but it just, it doesn't have to follow that people have to be gouged for rent in order to have a city with nice stuff, with cool stuff. And that's the trick, you know, that I think people in Washington, D.C. have been, have been led to believe that, you know, one follows the other. You can have a great city and have a bunch of amazing things to do and have local businesses that can thrive with more affordable rents if we, you know, work to decommodify this housing system. And I think, like I said, that's the jump that needs to be made from this cancel rent moment. We need to learn from this and understand that this housing policy is not sustainable and it's not meant, like I said, to actually house people. And we need to move to a housing policy that is meant to create a human right to housing and do so with a lot more efficiency than the current program, because the current policies are just, they're laced with inefficiencies, land speculation, public corruption. It creates inefficiencies and wasted money, and it leads to a homelessness crisis. And like you said, a Washington, D.C. that has no affordable housing stock whatsoever. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Will, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C., but we will be back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about the role of the corporate media in propagating the Wuhan lab leak conspiracy. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation by Joshua Cho, a freelance writer and media critic. Joshua, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, no problem. Glad to be here. Absolutely. And 
Joshua, uh, U.S. President Joe Robinette Biden uh, recently received a classified report that he commissioned back in May from the intelligence community to try to drill down on a source of the coronavirus pandemic and basically wanted them to determine whether or not it in fact uh, emerged from uh, the Wuhan Institute of virology. And of course, this is just a kind of rehashing of uh, uh, the racist conspiracy first pushed by uh, Donald J. Trump. And this report came back as inconclusive. And you recently published a piece on FAIR, that's Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, entitled Corporate Media Politicized WHO Investigation on COVID Origins to Vilify China. And I think this is important because uh, the media has played a serious role in uh, uh, pushing this narrative that the uh, uh, coronavirus pandemic emerged from this lab in Wuhan and as such uh, has used it to play up the overall uh, deep anti-China rhetoric and sentiment that uh, the U.S. government has been pushing in this uh, new Cold War reality against Beijing. And there's a couple of different aspects of this narrative that I want to get to, Joshua. I mean, in your piece, you note how uh, really uh, the media coverage has uh, been playing upon some old sort of standard orientalist tropes uh, uh, about China to um, uh, get this narrative out there. And a particularly one I wanted to touch on first was this notion that China, quote unquote, stalled an investigation and that China is being sneaky and secretive and deceitful in uh, its relationship to the international community and not letting people in to investigate. But from your perspective, uh, what is the reality of that? And uh, why are these tropes sort of being played upon in this broader narrative, uh, in your opinion? Um, I think these tropes are being played upon so that uh, the media, U.S. media can insinuate that there's been cover-up. Because um, like, they're like, oh, I mean, if they're innocent, why would they not want us to let us in? And they're kind of just concern trolling that way. Um, but in my, in my article, I talked about how um, some people are suspicious of like why it took so long for the investigation to actually begin. And sometimes, like, like these articles, they just they just rely on thought terminating stereotypes. Oh, China, you know, they just like being secretive. They like not being transparent. <laughs> and like, it's hard to think about like that's just such a silly reason. And like, I just had to investigate like what was behind that. And when an investigation was first proposed by Australia's Prime Minister Scott Morrison, um, barely anyone in the Western media like reported that like uh, he called for weapons inspectors' powers. And like, that's an extremely explosive. Uh, request because um, I think China remembers uh, what happened with Iraq and with what happened with weapons inspectors there, even though they couldn't find anything, um, they were still accused of having weapons of mass destruction anyways. And although Americans don't remember that, the Chinese people certainly do, and they would not grant that because that is not really a scientific endeavor because that's you're basically alleging that they have uh, potentially bioweapons there. And of course, they're not going to even like entertain the notion that they had them when there's no proof that the Wuhan Institute of Virology is a bioweapons lab, like some lab leak proponents claim. And um, and they were waiting for Joe Biden to get elected because uh, the U.S. has been the one promoting these claims to begin with. But um, Trump pulled the World Health Organization, uh, Trump pulled the U.S. out of the World Health Organization, and uh, they wanted to wait until Joe Biden got back in. So obviously that took 
quite a long time, but like people think, oh, they just wanted time to hide a lab leak. But I mean, that's just kind of like the go-to thing whenever there's no evidence against China or other Asian countries. Like, oh, if they can't find any evidence, it must be because they hid it. So basically, it's just an unfalsifiable like allegation. You can't, there's no winning against that. So that's why they do that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, you know, there are now, you know, accusations against uh, the WHO in the corporate media. They're politicizing the WHO investigation and, you know, basically saying that they're not they're not liking the results of the investigation Uh, to the point that, you know, the WHO and its investigation has been politicized in the corporate media so much to the point now that 52 percent of U.S. adults believe that COVID-19 leaked from the lab in Wuhan, which was up from 29% in March 2020. And this is contrary, this belief that the virus leaked uh, from this lab is actually contrary to the assessment of most scientists who believe, based on actual evidence, (laughs) that a natural origin for the virus is more likely. And I do find it interesting, Josh, that you know, at the center of the research for the virus's origins is the WHO. And in its initial investigation, which ended in February of this year, concluded that the lab leak hypothesis was extremely unlikely. But this is never reported in corporate media. They never point out that the WHO did this investigation. It was extensive. They had cooperation with uh, the lab in Wuhan and Chinese officials. but. They continue on this politicization of this insufficient investigation that the WHO has uh, uh, conducted. So now the WHO is is under scrutiny in this country by a lot of people who honestly probably didn't even know what the WHO was before they were mentioned in uh, in the context of these, uh, um, you know, these allegations of a virus leaking from Wuhan. So, I mean, what what do you think this has in in expanding this uh, xenophobia and legitimizing the new Cold War against China using this lab leak uh, conspiracy among regular folks in this country? Um, well, actually, I do think corporate media have reported that the WHO, the initial first phase of the WHO investigation concluded that a lab leak was extremely unlikely. They just think that that conclusion was because they were bought and paid for by China. So, I mean, this this whole thing that the WHO is controlled by China has been going on since last year. Like, it started when Trump accused China of, uh, of controlling the WHO because um, it said that China did a good job. And like, but like, you don't have to take the WHO's word for it, like independent science, prestigious science journals like The Lancet, Science Magazine, and uh, others, they all concluded that uh, China did a good job. So you don't, you don't really need to take the who's word for it, like the C assessment of independent science journals. And this, this, is, this is an interesting thing, because like whenever the who delivers conclusions that the United States doesn't like, they accuse it of um, being controlled by China. And uh, some Jewish journalists have pointed out that like it's similar to anti-Semitic tropes about like an international Jewish conspiracy that controls international organizations with money. And it's just so silly because like you can look at the WHO's website and they literally tell you that uh, the U.S. has been the WHO's largest donor. And before Trump pulled funding from the WHO before pulling out, like the U.S. was donating 10 times the amount of information, but 
not information, money into China, into the who, into the organization than China was. And like you're telling me, China controls the who with less, with around a tenth of the money that the U.S. puts. And yeah, but like, but they never really seem to raise the question about like whether the who is controlled by the U.S. When who Director General Tedros is now saying that like kind of playing up the possibility of a lab leak. So the accusations only flow in one direction. Uh, when they talk about how a lab leak's not probable, they say it's controlled by China. But when the people start saying at the who start saying that uh, that lab leak is actually more possible, but they ne- then they never question whether they're controlled by the U.S. Like some scientists have been accusing Tedros of caving into U.S. pressure and propaganda. Yeah, and you know what's wild about that, Joshua, is that these are Donald Trump talking points. I mean, it was Donald Trump who, you know, originally made the claim that the World Health Organization was a a puppet of the Chinese government. And uh, we've been seeing that even uh, liberal media platforms have been repeating that. I mean, you you make note of this in your piece of a New York Times report from November of 2020 entitled In Hunt for Virus Sorts, WHO Let China Take Charge. And they said in part, quote, the WHO's staunchest defenders note that by the nature of its constitution, it is beholden to the countries that finance it. And it is hardly the only international body bending to China's might. But even many of its supporters have been frustrated by the organization's secrecy, its public praise for China, and its quiet concessions. And so this is sort of the uh, landscape that we find ourselves in as it um, concerns this question, Josh, to where. Even these platforms like the NYT and others who, you know, have dedicated no small amount of space to, um, you know, criticizing Donald Trump are basically parroting his talking points because the aim is uh, ultimately China. And this this really makes me think again about how you, I think, correctly describe these uh, basically Orientalist sorts of uh, uh, stereotypes around China and and things like that, and and I for one believe that this uh, that these types of narratives were a big part of what stoked uh, anti Asian violence here in the United States uh, not that long ago. Uh, you know what I mean? And so, how do you sort of see the frankly racist aspect of this playing out in uh, uh, some of these narratives as it pertains to this conspiracy, Joshua? Um. Well, I mean it's. Like, if you look at propaganda from, like, they, from like the 19th century, like, they were, like, Western media has been saying that the Chinese are, like, uh, they're out to get us. They're, they're lying all the time. They can never be trusted. <laughs> and, like, which basically, if you go to the 21st century, pretty much nothing has changed uh, from that kind of narrative. And when you see videos of uh, some Asian people being attacked on the streets and hate crimes, uh, like, they... People literally cite the China lied, people died kind of talking points like, oh, like if you guys hadn't lied about the virus, we wouldn't be in this situation. And but like there are plenty of other countries around the world who have faced this pandemic much better than the United States. And you don't really want to start blaming countries for being the virus's origin, whether you believe it's a lab leak or what from an animal in China. Like, because if you start doing that, then like at least just start very problematic results. Like, for example, like, do you really want countries to start blaming the United States if an animal like spillover happens for the next pandemic here. Like, I don't think people would want that. Like these things happen. It's a matter of prevention and it's a matter of taking the proper precautions. But 
I think this kind of weapon, this kind of weaponization is especially important regarding the Wuhan Institute of Virology because doctors like Xi Zheng Li, who's a very prominent scientist there, has openly denied the claims. And like she said, very fairly dramatically, like, oh, I swear on my life that had, that this pandemic has nothing to do with our lab. And she said that she would welcome a visit any time. But like, if the lab leak allegations are true, then you pretty much have to assume she's lying. But like, there's no evidence that she is lying. And all the scientists who know her, like, even strangers who just had the first impression of her, like the, these scientists recall saying, I don't think she's the type of person to do that. So, but like these media making out her out to be some villain that's reckless, irresponsible, who doesn't know how to take proper safety precautions, and it's just uh, really racist to just assume that they're lying without any evidence. Yeah, and there's another aspect to this too uh, concerning the United States. I think Josh, in that all of th- this finger pointing at China as being the the culprit, and that's really what it is. It's being treated as a criminal accusation against a whole government as the source and the perpetrator of the coronavirus pandemic that's ravaging the whole of the earth. But in doing that, it points away from the mismanagement of the pandemic carried out by the U.S. government. And so if, you know, China is all of these negative things that you say, repressive and authoritarian and, and all that and, you know, uh, uh, not transparent and not wanting to be held accountable and all of that, well, then it can help people forget really the complete lack of accountability um, of the U.S. government in terms of its own people. You know, as we stare down over 600,000 deaths of the coronavirus, the Delta variant just uh, sweeping across this nation and, you know, uh, just so many basic things not being taken care of in terms of people's needs as a policy choice, not for a lack of resources, but as a choice from those that are in power. And so to me, that sort of feels like um, another aspect of this as well. It's it's useful to make a boogeyman because it turns people attention away from uh, how horribly this government in the U.S. has failed to really address the problem. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, the editor of the British Medical Journal, uh, the executive editor, I believe he published uh, an editorial a while back um, about like how Western governments, like especially the U.S., uh, might credibly be accused of social murder, which is a concept uh, by Friedrich Engels, a Marxist philosopher. And because, uh, like, quite frankly, I don't think it was the pandemic was mismanaged. I think it was managed the way uh, it would be expected to be managed if you prioritize profits over people's lives. So I don't. In that case, I don't really think it was a mis like a mistake or anything like that. Like I think there was a a leaked re- a report or about a potential leak or about someone within the Trump administration last year saying that they wanted people to get infected to achieve herd immunity faster. And like there are multiple ways of reaching herd immunity. Like for one thing, you could be like China, like you could prevent infection and start vaccinating your pro- population to achieve herd immunity that way through vaccination. But the U.S. approach to herd immunity is just to get as many people infected as possible or just not caring too much about that. And uh, um, when that happens, uh, it's just inevitably going to result in a catastrophic. It's just it's just really stunning when you look at the numbers. Like the U.S. has over 600,000 COVID deaths with less than one-fourth of China's population, while China has less than 5,000. And like when people hear those stats, like they just think China's lying when China actually just did a good job. It's an example of what happens when the government prioritizes people's over profits, like Xi Jinping said in a speech regarding how the government handled the pandemic. 
And I think one thing I want to point out is that, like, I don't think China has monopoly on authoritarianism, uh, lack of transparency, because all those things you could accuse China of, you could basically accuse the U.S. of that as well. And the U.S., I believe, has more political, more prisoners than any other country on earth, and basically has a racial, racist ethno gulag against black people, where they are incarcerated at a much higher rate compared to other uh, parts of the U.S. population. But like, people don't really want to go into that about slave labor here and authoritarianism and social murder in the U.S. because uh, the U.S. is very authoritarian, and I think people talking about that too much might uh, suffer some consequences overtly or uh, maybe not so overtly. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Joshua, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C., but we will be back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Thursday, August 26th, 2021. And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today. Anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. But that's not the only place that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you will, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us. That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices, and comrades, that's you, to reach out and touch us at By Any Means Necessary. Here in Washington, D.C., they can do that at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But they can also hit us up on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, we hope soon, at BAM Necessary. Then our shows can be downloaded on iTunes, where we would very much appreciate a good rating from you. They can hear us on iHeartRadio, Spotify, Spreaker, Stitcher, and lots of other podcast platforms. They can listen to us live on SputnikNews.com and on their radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 20 That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do when we're very happy to be joined for the hour today by Dr. Gerald Horn, the Morris Professor of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston and the author of many books, including The Apocalypse of Settler Colonialism, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy and Capitalism, and 17th Century North America and the Caribbean, and Blows Against Empire, U.S. Imperialism in Crisis. Dr. Horn, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. And uh, Dr. Horn, it's being reported that more than 60 people have been killed in an attack at the airport in Kabul, Afghanistan. Uh, I believe there's 
been at least two explosions that have been uh, reported as of uh, our conversation here. And uh, obviously, this is as a result of the pullout of U.S. military forces as directed by uh, President Joe Biden uh, in what is frankly, uh, to me, seems like the only logical conclusion of this two decade long uh, imperialist adventure that the United States has uh, been engaged in in Afghanistan that has wrought incredible death and suffering and devastation for the people of that country. And it feels like there's a lot that's caught up in this, Dr. Horn, both in terms of Afghanistan specifically and geopolitically. But really, I'd like to start by discussing how you see the U.S. presence in Afghanistan within the context of the American settler colonial project? Well, uh, I would just make a friendly amendment with regard to your apt description of this imperial adventure or misadventure, uh, which is that it was actually in the late 1970s that Jimmy Carter and his hawkish national security advisors, the big Neff Brzezinski, began to interfere aggressively in the internal affairs of Afghanistan, uh, helping to engage in a diabolical marriage of convenience with religious zealots in order to destabilize the People's Democratic Party, then ruling in Kabul, which was part of an overall project to drag the then Soviet Union into a quagmire of those who may be shedding copious crocodile tears about the understandably concerning fate and plight of women and girls in Afghanistan should recognize that the People's Democratic Party, of course, was pursuing a policy of women's equality, which helped to incite many of these religious zealots who were then backed by the government in which many of these criers paid taxes. So this is another example of how U.S. imperialism has devised a strategy that has led to chaos. Now, there are those who suggest that U.S. imperialism wants either control or chaos. The problem here is that some of the forces that they're combating, such as those who are accused of this bombing in Kabul at the airport just today, may be more deaf at chaos, at least on the local level, than U.S. imperialism. And I'm afraid to say that what you saw today or what you read about today may not be the end of the story. Uh, What I mean is that as Washington devises this plan to pull out of Afghanistan so that it can pivot towards confronting China, uh, I'm afraid to say that uh, those they're leaving behind in Afghanistan might have a word or two to say about this. What I mean is, is that I fully expect what happened in Afghanistan in the 1990s after the religious zealots seized power, uh, not least because of assistance from U.S. imperialism, and then they began to squabble and fight amongst each other, uh, leading to the devastation of the country. I'm afraid to say that that pattern might be replicated, and the U.S. imperialism will be splattered by that strategy, not least because neighboring Pakistan was also part of this diabolical plan, uh, despite 
uh, helping the Taliban, who remains an ally of U.S. imperialism. And there's still numerous uh, U.S. nationals in neighboring Afghanistan. And just like those who are accused of this bombing today, I'm speaking of the so-called ISIL Khorasan, they're actually a split off from the Taliban. Because what happens with regard to these religious zealots is that they're very good at fighting, which is one of the reasons why U.S. imperialism continues to collaborate with them in Syria. However, they're not necessarily interested in devising a new way to pick up the garbage. They would prefer to fight infidels till the cows come home. And so I think that that's going to be the unfortunate fate and plight of Afghanistan. And the United States seeking to pack up and leave, I don't think it's necessarily going to work out that way. Yeah. And, you know, all of the other interests that you named, Dr. Horn, China, Pakistan, uh, India, they they have been involved or at least have had interests in uh, Afghanistan for, heck, I guess as long as the United States has been involved in the country, certainly before uh, uh, Russia was involved in in uh, uh, coming into the country to defend uh, the Marxist government that the U.S. clearly had interest in overthrowing. Um, so to be clear, uh, and check me if I'm check me on my history if I'm wrong, Doctor Horn, the U.S. was probably involved in Afghanistan long before uh, they got involved in the invasion of Afghanistan. Uh, after uh, 9-11, they were probably there and involved in overthrowing the Marxist government uh, in Afghanistan before the Russians even came. And am I guessing at that or is that true? Well, as I suggested, the aggressive interference in Afghanistan's internal affairs began before the Soviet intervention of December 1979. In fact, the U.S. interference was designed to attract a Soviet intervention. Interestingly enough, after the sellout regime in Moscow of Boris Yeltsin pulled the plug on aid to the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan, this was after the collapse of the Soviet Union in December 1991, you saw that uh, from the Moscow pullout in 1989 up through 1992, the regime, the People's Democratic Party, was able to hang on until Yeltsin pulled the plug. And that led to the lynching and castration, Negro style, of the last left-leaning leader in Kabul, speaking of Najibullah. And what's remarkable is that if you compare the U.S. pullout, which is supposedly going to take place on August 31st, the puppet regime of the United States could not last even until then. And that's a reflection of the fact that if you look Objectively, at the Soviet role in Afghanistan, it was much more involved in the kind of, quote, nation-building, unquote, that the United States only talks about. Uh, for example, uh, a good deal of infrastructure in Afghanistan to this day, uh, hydroelectric plants, for example, is a direct product of Soviet construction. But the, the problem for U.S. imperialism right now is that future historians may very well decide and determine, as they're doing as we speak, that Washington thought that it was using China beginning in the 1970s when it cut a deal with Beijing 
against the interests of Moscow. But China, in some ways, got a bigger half of the loaf since they received in return massive foreign direct investment that's created this juggernaut. I'm afraid to say that future historians in the near future may determine that U.S. imperialism thought it was using these religious zealots. But actually, the religious zealots were actually using U.S. imperialism to build up their own role and their own capacity. And that may, as I've suggested in my previous comment, come back to haunt U.S. imperialism in a way that is difficult to imagine. And then there's the contradiction that Washington still wants to bash the U.S. left and U.S. progressive forces, which was the calling card for U.S. imperialism during the previous epoch, speaking of the Cold War and the Red Scare. They would like to continue doing so during the new Cold War with China, not least because it'll weaken opposition to the new Cold War, not to mention weakening progressive forces who may want to redistribute the wealth right here in the United States of America. However, the United States imperialism may very well realize that they will need progressive forces if they are serious and sincere, which is doubtful, about confronting these religious zealots because many progressive forces are up in arms, understandably, about the impending plight of Afghan women and girls. And that's part of the contradiction that has ensnared U.S. imperialism which has fundamentally painted itself into a corner. Yeah, and you touched on something that I really wanted to get into, Dr. Horn, and that's the blowback on the United States as a result of supporting these extremist groups. And we know that the U.S. has a history of supporting uh, extremists and terrorists as long as those groups um, help them facilitate the imperialist ends of Washington. And I mean, I mean, to me, this seems how uh, things led up to the tragic attacks on September 11, 2001, uh, the anniversary of which we're coming up on here in the coming days. And it's the fact that the, the U.S. was responsible for funding, supporting and building up a lot of these groups, uh, I believe, as you were saying, to try to oust uh, the Soviet Union in places like Afghanistan. So it, it, it basically acts as an incubator for terror and then turns around and declares a supposed war on terror that ends up being a war of terror that has just caused uh, incredible suffering for folks um, all around the world, frankly. And even some of that war, I think, has blown back uh, uh, of the pe- on the people of the United States as well. I think particularly in the realm of uh, uh, political repression and things like this. And so that feels like a big part of that contradiction that you're describing. It's that the U.S. becomes so laser focused and so myopic on sort of its uh, uh, shorter term goals that it's basically willing to cut its nose off to spite its own face and put the country and the people in it in danger just to uh, further its imperial ends. And for me, Dr. Horn, it's just more evidence that this capitalist imperialist system is, in fact, a death cult. Well, I'm afraid you're onto something. But to uh, put it more prosaically, uh, U.S. imperialism is now to the religious zealots, at least in certain parts of the world, that we're just not into you anymore. We're not that into you anymore. But the 
religious zealots are operating like the lover from hell. Um, they're going to track down U.S. imperialism uh, until the end of time. And that's part of the unintended consequences that Washington did not bargain for. Now, notice in my previous remarks how I was couching my words. Uh, I was saying that they are not into those religious zealots perhaps in Afghanistan. But what about Saudi Arabia, which is religious zealotry in power? Uh, speaking of 9-11, we know that 15 of the 19 accused hijackers on September 11th were Saudi nationals. We know that the Saudi consulate in Southern California uh, had some very curious relationships with these accused hijackers. We know that the Saudi envoy to Washington at that time, uh, Prince Bandar, was known as Bandar Bush because of his close relationship to one George W. Bush, and in fact, painted his private airplane in the colors of his favorite football team, the Dallas Cowboys, which is cited in the hometown, the present hometown of Mr. Bush, speaking of the colors silver and blue. We know that uh, the Saudis have been accused, even by Mr. Biden, of participating in the assassination of Washington Post journalists and Saudi nationalists, of Jamal Khashoggi, uh, who was chopped into pieces by MBS, the de facto leader, Mohammed bin Salman, that is to say his confederates. MBS um, might stand for a middle-sized bone saw, for example, as opposed to Mohammed bin Salman. And so when religious zealots actually seize power, as apparently they're about to do in Afghanistan, assuming that the scenario I paint of them going at each other's throats is not materialized, you may find a situation where Washington will decide to kiss and make up, to continue the analogy, uh, with the Taliban because of location. Uh, Iran in the crosshairs is on the western border. The uh, Afghanistan shares a 47-mile-long border with the People's Republic of China, and then they're the Russian allies of Tajikistan and Uzbekistan. And keep in mind, too, that uh, there needs to be a bit of self-criticism, I'm afraid to say, by the U.S. left, at least sections of it, because when historians of the future assume that we survive nuclear holocaust and climate change, go back and look at the records, they may be staggered and stunned to see so many U.S. leftists actually cheering on the religious zealots because of their ingrained and inured anti-Sovietism, which has now led to this present debacle. And I'm afraid to say that the same could be said uh, for the People's Republic of China, which was in alliance with these zealots, even though they're a potential loser in case the Taliban and their allies decide that the fighting the infidels is more exciting than picking up garbage and decide to extend their crusade, if you like, into Western China, uh, targeting the weakest. And so there are a lot of apology and self-criticism and self-analysis and agonizing reappraisals that need to take place on the part of U.S. imperialism, on the part of the U.S. left, and all those in between. But alas, I have yet to detect a glimmer of that to this point. Yeah, we're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We will be back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary.
by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lukeman continue to be joined by Dr. Gerald Horn. And Dr. Horn, I wanted to uh, shift gears a little bit while still on the same uh, subject of the Taliban's takeover of Afghanistan following uh, the pullout of the U.S. military under the direction of uh, President Joe Biden. And that's the ripple effects that it has on the African continent, um, another place where, you know, uh, issues with these sorts of extremist groups have been uh, uh, going on for some time. I mean, for instance, I saw that, you know, a media outlet that is uh, connected to Al-Shabaab in Somalia was uh, celebrating the advance of the Taliban in Afghanistan here recently and things like this. And and so, I mean, how do you think that uh, Africa sort of plays into this, uh, uh, Dr. Horn, in terms of, I mean, what it means for the, the, the Taliban to have such a strong position as of right now? So this is not good news for Africa, I'm afraid to say. Already in northern Mozambique, you see that religious zealots are on the march. It's attracted the military forces from South Africa in particular, and Rwanda, uh, which is not that close to northern Mozambique, to intervene on the side of the government. And by the way, previous U.S. foreign policy is a culprit here in the sense that uh, Washington helped to destabilize the socialist-oriented Mozambican government under founding father Samora Michel, uh, whose plane was directed into a mountain in the mid-1980s by the apartheid authorities, which led to the death of of himself and many of his closest comrades. And that softened up Mozambique with this incursion by religious zealots. And that's not to mention the religious zealots on the march in Africa's giants, speaking of Nigeria, Northern Nigeria, in this case, with a spillover into neighboring Cameroon. And if you look at the Sahel, the regions stretching from Mauritania on the west to Mali and Niger, Chad, Sudan, all the way across to Somalia, leapfrogging the Red Sea into Yemen, you see that religious zealots likewise are on the march. So, what this is going to mean in part is that this victory for the zealots. In Afghanistan, it's like an advertising broadside uh, on their behalf. It will encourage more adherence because many will come to think, that, as Osama bin Laden once said, uh, they're the strong horse and U.S. imperialism is the weak horse. However, that inevitably will lead to a weakening of the already fragile state structures in Africa, in the aforementioned regions, which will then help to incite uh, further refugee flows across the Mediterranean into Europe, which in turn will help to bolster what I had thought had been the lagging fortunes of right-wing populists uh, who will profit electorally and politically. And that brings us to the other headline story of Afghanistan, which is that U.S. imperialism's role has been as a guarantor for world imperialism, not least European and North Atlantic imperialism. But U.S. imperialism has failed miserably in that role. 
which will encourage France, which under President Macron has said that NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, spearheaded by the United States of America, is brain dead, will encourage the Europeans to develop their own uh, military infrastructure outside of NATO. Recall that NATO uh, was involved in Afghanistan and felt that they were blindsided when Mr. Biden chose to pull out without consulting adequately with them. And so they wanted to stay on, but didn't have the military infrastructure because they're so reliant upon U.S. imperialism. So assuming they developed that military infrastructure, that's developing more the weapons of war, which can only end badly, it seems to me, for humanity. Yeah, we've got a caller on the line here. Baltimore Charles, tell us what's on your mind. Good afternoon, my friends. How are you today? Good. And uh, welcome back, my brother. I appreciate you. Uh, I'm glad you have Dr. Horn on because I wanted to try to, if I could, just pick his brains on just a couple of quick items, if I could. Uh, Dr. Horn, what's the difference between the uh, Wahhabi Wahhabi, uh, uh, Islamic faith practices of uh, Saudi Arabia and those of uh, the Taliban in Afghanistan, uh, are they uh, do they parallel pretty much the same? Because much has been said about the rights of, of women and uh, uh, children and uh, things in Afghanistan around uh, the treatment, uh, their treatment thereof, and so forth. And also, I wanted to uh, ask you uh, when you see U.S. imperialism. Uh, which uh, rides on the back of um, of uh, British imperialism and sometimes Russian imperialism uh, in their um, construction of the flag, uh, which uh, people interpret as uh, uh, red blood running through blue veins on uh, white skin, uh, which is displayed by most of the European nations throughout the world who incorporate those colors or similarly so. Uh, what do you see uh, in that particular thesis uh, uh, for going around the world and uh, uh, it's espousing uh, colonialism, imperialism, i.e., what have you? And I appreciate your taking my call, and if you could respond to those questions. Thank you so much. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Baltimore. Charles, good to hear from you. Hope to hear from you again soon. Uh, Dr. Horn, your thoughts? Well, first of all, with regard to the flag, I mean, the, the Haitian flag, which I'm looking at now, has the colors red, white, and blue in that flag. Uh, so I'm not so sure about the color analysis. And not least, since the Haitian Revolution uh, led to a general crisis slave system that helped to liberate the ancestors of many of us. With regard to the Wahhabis in Saudi Arabia versus the Taliban and other religious zealots, well, I think that there are distinctions without a real difference. I think that the Wahhabis, at least in the form of the royal family, uh, have been in power, holding state power. And the Saudis are part of the G20, which is part of the executive committee of the administration of planet Earth. And I think that that may have calmed, become many of their excesses. But with regard to a number of fundamental issues, which the caller mentioned, such as gender apartheid, there's not that much difference between the Taliban and the Wahhabis. Although, once again, because they hold state power, the Wahhabis have been to creep away a bit 
from the more excessive forms of gender apartheid. Uh, for example, allowing uh, women to go outside without being accompanied by a male party of sorts. And you, you see all, all <laughs> at the Taliban in their recent press conference, uh, they said that uh, they were willing to tolerate women having jobs, although they added the footnote within the context of Sharia law, which is a major loophole. And then they warned the other day that women might want to stay inside because some of their comrades uh, in uh, the Taliban or on the street have not been sufficiently educated and acculturated and might act badly if they see a woman dressed in a way they deem to be inappropriate and might decide to whip her on the spot. So this is the mess and the fiasco that U.S. imperialism has helped to create. Yeah, that, you know, I think that was an interesting question uh, about the difference between the Wahhabist uh, version of Islam that is, I, I wouldn't even say practiced, <laughs> that that they perpetrate in Saudi Arabia and uh, the Taliban. Um, you know, Abdus would always tell me about how it was the Saudi regime that pushed Wahhabism in the black Muslim community in the United States in the mid to late 70s to dampen the influence of the black Muslim community outside of the nation of Islam now, because everybody thinks of black Muslims and they only think of the nation of Islam. But there was an Islam, uh, a black Islam community that was very large. I didn't uh, uh, orange New Jersey. Uh, was one of the largest communities. And of course, Abdus was an imam there, uh, has a lot of history there. And he often tells the story of how uh, women, uh, uh, Islamic women, would wear very colorful colorful and uh, beautiful hijabs. They weren't covered from head to toe. They were, you know, expressed uh, uh, their fashion in with, you know, different colors and earrings and, and that kind of thing. And uh, you could find books on all manner of uh, different schools of Islam from mysticism to, you know, some types of fundamentalism. But all of a sudden, and apparently this comes from the Nixon administration. And again, Dr. Horn, I'm going to rely on your your historical expertise here to to validate what I what I was told happened. Apparently, the edict came from the Nixon administration that Something's got to be done about these black Muslims, not just the nation of Islam, but the rest of the black Muslims. And there was a deal made with the government of Saudi Arabia to the point where they started pouring money into black uh, Muslim communities, sending over Wahhabist clerics, basically discrediting uh, the more uh, uh, progressive and mystics focused um, uh, teaching schools of thought uh, or fickers in uh, black Muslim communities. And then finally, all the women wore black. Uh, only the Wahhabist kind of, uh, of, of tenets of uh, Islam were being taught in a lot of black uh, uh, Muslim uh, uh, mosques. And all of the bookstores, you could only find Saudi Arabia approved Wahhabist uh, ideology being taught. 
So I'm wondering if, if you know, is that you, are you aware of that connection between the Nixon administration and the influence of the spread of, of Wahhabism in the United States, Dr. Horn? Well, I'm not aware of that with the specificity that you have just articulated, but it would not surprise me if that were the case, because we know that in other parts of the world where U.S. imperialism has begun to operate, that oftentimes accompanying them as a kind of ideological bodyguard has been the Saudi Wahhabis. For example, if you look at the Balkans, for example, when 30 years ago the United States began to try to break up socialist Yugoslavia, and that led to the influx of Saudi money into Kosovo, into Albania, which is, of course, a neighbor to the West, so formerly socialist Yugoslavia, and that helped to tip the scale, along with other factors, against the socialist-oriented forces. And in fact, Netflix has a documentary film about a Black American Muslim who is attracted to go fight with his religious comrades in the Balkans. And it's it's, it's very detailed and, and very striking. I'm afraid I can't uh, think of the title, although, of course, if you play with a search engine adroitly, you ought to be able to come up uh, with the title. And I should also say that these impending changes in Afghanistan, what folks should realize is that what happens in Afghanistan won't necessarily stay in Afghanistan. That is to say, I think it would be folly and foolish to think that any step backwards for women uh, has no impact outside of Afghanistan, that if the Taliban imitates their predecessors of the 1990s in Kabul and seeks to ban music and art and film and crack down on other religious traditions, even other Muslim religious traditions like Shia Islam, uh, that this contributes to a kind of uh, reactionary philosophy and practice that can very well spread. And so that's why it seems to me that one of the things that we can do right now, although it may not be at the top of the list, is a kind of self-inventory and self-analysis and self-criticism with regard to our past and present policies uh, that have led to this fiasco, which is now simply a fiasco in Afghanistan, but as I've indicated, will not remain in Afghanistan alone. Yeah, I think I think that's a fact. I think that's a fact. And I actually wanted to swing back around, Dr. Horn, to something that you mentioned a little earlier conversation about uh, the U.S. left, the nominal left, perhaps we could call it. And excuse me, um, what that analysis looks like and what perhaps a more sober estimation of the whole Afghanistan question could really look like, because one thing that I'm noticing, and I haven't just noticed it with Afghanistan, I've noticed it with Syria. I've noticed it on the Ethiopia question and things like that about, there are people who, you know, are presumably progressive or left leaning who seem to take a position that there's something positive to be gained 
by uh, U.S. intervention in the country in question, whether it's any of those. We had the editorial boards of major media platforms openly calling for um, uh, U.N. troops in Haiti, even after acknowledging the crimes of uh, troops in that country historically and things like this. And so, I mean, where do you think the confusion sorts uh, 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 sort of comes in when it comes to having a consistent anti-imperialist line on some of these issues. And it just really feels like some of us are just very easily manipulated, frankly, into basically uh, holding the same line as the U.S. government. And that is an issue, of course, because sometimes when you're an anti-imperialist, there are some who will accuse you of basically just being anti-American. And that you you um you hold these positions because you've got some serious uh gripe or or some serious axe to grind with the United States and its government. And I mean, I do, but it's not like a selfish sort of uh uh deal. It's the understanding of what this country has wrought, both for those of us inside this country and around the world, and just the historical fact that US intervention has never meant anything positive wherever it has happened. You know what I mean? And so, I mean, where do you think our thinking as people inside the imperial core should be when it comes to this Afghanistan question, doctor? Well, I think that what you're describing is a certain ideological confusion. And I would argue that it stems in no small measure from the previous epic, speaking of the Red Scare and the Cold War, when the U.S. left was bludgeoned, and you had uh, our leaders like Paul Robeson tossed overboard, and in return, you saw in the black community in particular, certain kinds of anti-Jim Crow concessions as a result of that devil's bargain, throw overboard the left and then receive anti-Jim Crow concessions. But that deal expired a long time ago. But like some latter-day key sweat, the black leadership is trying to say, make it last forever with regard to a deal that has expired. And so it's quite curious that, A, you see many, few, excuse me, few, very few uh, black leaders or intellectuals for that matter who are being quoted or cited on the, in the U.S. press with regard to Afghanistan because Many of them couldn't point out Afghanistan on a map if you spot them, Iran and Pakistan. And that's a result of this bargain whereby we would not necessarily uh, speak out in an anti-imperialist fashion on foreign policy as long as the anti-Jim Crow concessions flow. But as I said, that bargain is over. Forget about it. And the same holds true for the labor movement, uh, which also went through a certain kind of purge, and the labor movement uh, which is responsible for making sure that the working class wages and working conditions improve, likewise is yet to recover. And so when those two bulwarks of our movement have been neutered, it's not surprising that that has ripple effect with regard to many of our friends on the U.S. left, who then oftentimes take what you correctly determined to be these uh, naive points of view with regard to interventionism uh, in uh, places like Syria, which relies on the same kinds of religious zealots that supposedly people are opposed to in Afghanistan. 
Right. And we're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I am here. Jackie Lukeman is here. Dr. Gerald Horn is here. And uh, Dr. Horn, speaking of U.S. imperialism and its implications, in Afghanistan, in Africa, uh, in the Middle East, uh, in Asia, and elsewhere. I'm wondering what you are thinking of the recent visit of Vice President Kamala Harris to uh, uh, Southeast Asia, including Vietnam, with, you know, uh, Kamala Harris imploring the countries of that region to, you know, uh, be a partner to the United States, combating the the quote-unquote bullying of China in the South China Sea. Uh, you know, uh, Harris, you know, meeting with uh, uh, the parts of the leadership of Vietnam, although uh, Vietnam seems to be, you know, have indicated they're not, they're not interested in joining in this uh, new Cold War reality with Washington. And, you know, I'm sort of generally curious what you're making um, of this. It just sort of seems that these ongoing attacks against China by the U.S. government um, are coming from all sorts of uh, different angles. I think economically, I mean, certainly militarily, we know with excuse me, the way that um, the network of U.S. bases are set up to encircle the countries that uh, uh, the U.S. deems, um, you know, to be a threat. And uh, it's just clear that the U.S. has continued, you know, beating this drum of the South China Sea issue. And so, doctor, I'm just wondering how you sort of situate uh, Harris's visit to Southeast Asia as part and parcel of that broader anti-China effort. Well, first of all, I'm a bit surprised because I predicted after she was elected on November 2020 that her first foreign trip would be to India, since India is slated by Washington to be the spearhead of this new anti-China cabal and given her ancestral roots in India. But obviously I was wrong there. With regard to Vietnam, there hangs a tale because recall that the genocidal U.S. war in Vietnam, which concluded ignominiously in April 1975, was premised on the idea that if the United States did not stop the so-called communists in Vietnam, they might have to stop them in San Francisco. But beginning in 1971-72, the United States had brokered a deal with the communists in China, and that should have tipped them off to the fact that this idea of monolithic communist parties was something of a misreading of history. And then when China waged war against Vietnam after the United States was pushed out in 1975, uh, that should have tipped off one and all to this idea that the premise and predicate of the Vietnam War was fairly. That is to say, this idea of the so-called monolithic communist uh, movement and then 
after the Communist Party of Vietnam uh, helped to lead the overthrow of the Khmer Rouge in neighboring Cambodia, who between 1975 and 1979 inflicted a horrendous genocide uh, on the Khmer people of Cambodia, that that led to a ganging up of China and U.S. imperialism on Vietnam to punish it for having the temerity to oust the Khmer Rouge. And once again, what you find in the United States is that uh, these folks, not only in the ruling class, but also oftentimes in the U.S. left, they have a theory of the case, and such as so-called monolithic communist movement. And even when that theory does not seem to be real or practical, they'll stick to it. It reminds me of the mythical French intellectual uh, who says, I know what you're saying is true in practice. The question is, is it true in theory? In other words, they get hung up on these particular theories and cling to them without having an understanding of history, without having an understanding of the facts as they're unfolding. And that, my friends, inevitably leads to the kind of fiascos and debacles that we're now witnessing in Afghanistan. Yeah, and I'm wondering if Harris's visit to Vietnam is going to lead to a a worse situation that could lead to a hot war with China, because the reason she was there, Dr. Horn, was to to make a big statement about, uh, you know, uh, U.S. uh, not approving uh, China's intimidation uh, over claims of a vast majority of the South China Sea. Um, And she met with Vietnamese President Nguyen Huan Phuc uh, and uh, accused China of bullying in the South China Sea. And, and I'm wondering if you feel that, you know, this is another one of those precursors uh, to the kind of full-blown, uh, you know, fiascos that leads to military actions and wars that lead to war crimes that we saw in Vietnam in the first place. Well, I, I, hope, I hope that's not the case. And in fact, I would like to warn the hotheads in Washington that if you could not subdue a bunch of religious zealots and pickup trucks with RPGs, rocket propelled grenades, and AK-47, how are you going to subdue the People's Republic of China uh, with this sizable army, one of the biggest armies on planet Earth, uh, which has the capability to send rockets into outer space, and you're talking about subduing that particular power, and you can subdue the Taliban? I mean, you folks need to uh, wake up and smell the gunpowder. But I'm afraid to say that it is a possibility that that blooming dystopian scenario that you sketched uh, may prove to be the case. That is to say that U.S. imperialism may decide to go down in flames. And I don't say that with any glee or satisfaction, I'm in steerage on this ship of fools and inevitably uh, will suffer the consequences if any kind of harebrained war scheme is launched. But what it reminds me of is the so-called October uh, Missile Crisis of October 1962, the Cuban Missile Crisis, where Moscow had placed defensive missiles in Cuba. The United States was threatening nuclear war unless the Soviets removed those missiles. It was worked out. But I remember at the time that the then young Cuban leader, Fidel Castro, 
said, look, the time is now to get rid of this imperialist problem. And I'm happy to say that uh, Comrade Fidel's advice was not followed, but we have to realize that we're living in a reckless regime that routinely overestimates this strength, which is then bolstered in turn by, in turn by what we've made reference to, the ideological weaknesses and debilities and frailties of the opposition, speaking of the U.S. left, from liberal to radical, which reminds me that part of the problem is that the conservatives have, have a philosophy of no enemies to our rights. Uh, you saw that in Charlottesville in August 19, uh, 2017, when Mr. Trump refused to denounce the Nazis and Klansmen uh, who had been on the march, whereas the liberals have a ruling philosophy of no friends to, their, to, to our left. Uh, that is to say that folks like myself, if I was on fire, they wouldn't even urinate on me to put out the fire. So that's part of the fundamental problem we see in this country. Yeah, we're going to squeeze in another caller here. Uh, Mirat, tell us what's on your mind. Uh, hello, gentlemen. Hello, I'm my sister Jackie. I'm not sure if she's there or not. I wasn't on the radio. I just said, let me uh, make this quick call. And uh, this is about what happened today at the airport in Afghanistan. Um, I strongly believe, and um, uh, now they're talking about ISIS on the phone. Now, there's talk about ISIS being in Afghanistan. I'll call, excuse my French, but I will call some uh, BS on that. For one thing, the Taliban would never, ever, ever allow ISIS to operate in Afghanistan. I don't care who says that ISIS is in Afghanistan. That's one more BS. These are two separate people with two different uh, ideologies. Now, Al-Qaeda was able to operate in Afghanistan because the Taliban and Al-Qaeda have a history back in the 80s. As a matter of fact, with the United States, when the Taliban used to be the Mujahideen, we all know about that. This bombing at the Kabul airport today, I strongly believe, if you look at it, who has to benefit from that. The United States has until August the 31st to get out of Afghanistan. All of a sudden, all of a sudden, boom, there's an attack at the airport, which will probably give the Taliban a little hesitancy to say, okay, Biden, you have a few more days or a few more weeks to stay in the country, but you got to go. Um, again, the last time I called, I let you guys know that I was sick. So please forgive my, uh, my not very clear of what I'm trying to say. Thank you. And I'll take my answer off the air. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Mirad. Good to hear from you. Hope to uh, hear from you again soon. Um, and yeah, so, I mean, Dr. Horn, you raises an interesting point in terms of, you know, this timeline of the United States of uh, August 31st, just a few days from now and what that could, you know, and basically the politics of even that. And I mean, I can't help but, you know, uh, think about, you know, how quickly uh, uh, Ashraf Ghani fled the scene after, um, you know, it was announced that uh, U.S. forces were pulling out. So, I mean, you know, those things sort of taken together, I mean, how do you think they sort of highlight or expose what, what Washington is even really after in terms of its 
um, uh, a tactic of pulling out of Afghanistan here. Well, if I heard the caller correctly, he was questioning whether or not uh, there is such an organization as ISIL Khorasan, which has been accused even by the Taliban of executing this bombing at the airport today. Well, I'm not so sure. Number one, I, I, I regret having to say this, and before the in, in, intelligence networks light up, I have no specific information, but it wouldn't surprise me if you had ISIL forces in Taliban in Washington, D.C., let alone in Kabul. And just because there might be antagonism, that there is antagonism between Taliban and, and ISIL-K, uh, that doesn't mean that ISIL-K is not present. It just means that uh, the state, they don't even have a government in Kabul right now. And so, uh, you know, all kinds of forces could be uh, wandering around in that particular city. And in fact, if you recall, when Mr. Trump negotiated this deal in 2020, the idea, his premise, and Secretary of State Michael Pompeo's premise, was they were going to enlist the Taliban to fight ISIL-K. And from their point of view, that would be like knocking out two birds with one stone, as they say in the United States. And then keep in mind that there are all sorts of open linkages, and who knows what kinds of hidden linkages there are between these various religious zealots. I mean, for example, you have Khalil Haqqani, who addressed the Friday prayers just a few days ago, who is part of the Haqqani network, which makes the Taliban look like choir boys, but he has a loose relationship with the Taliban. In fact, is now director of security, as I understand it, in Kabul, Afghanistan. And, of course, he is the connected tissue between the Taliban and al-Qaeda. So, once again, I'll caution the caller uh, not to leap to any unwarranted conclusion. Yeah, you know, there the connections between the, these, you know, disparate groups of extremists, uh, I think that can't be understated, just like, you know, we can't understate the connections to U.S. imperialism and the existence of these groups of extremists, that the fact that they even exist uh, is largely undergirded by imperialism, U.S. imperialism and its global hegemony. You know, but there is one question, uh, Dr. Horn, that I'm really curious about, um, and that involves China and the Belt and Road Initiative, because last year, I think, or a few years ago, China did host a delegation of members of the Taliban uh, because they did control a large part of Afghanistan, despite what the U.S. media claimed. The The Taliban did control almost 70, if not 80 percent of Afghanistan. So they already held a lot of power in the country. And apparently they entered or at least some faction of the Afghan government entered into uh, a deal with uh, China to expand the Belt and Road Initiative. What happens to the Belt and Road Initiative now, in your estimation, that the Taliban has complete control of the country? There is There are no resources coming from the United States for rebuilding anything in Afghanistan. China is already committed, said that they're committed to uh, carrying out the Belt and Road Initiative, holding up their end of the bargain. Does the Taliban continue with this deal? Uh, under the Belt and Road Initiative with China, or do they make China enemies now? Well, Mullah Bardar, who is one of the leading forces of the Taliban, was actually in Beijing meeting with the foreign minister a few weeks ago. You might have seen the photos. I think 
that it's too soon to say what will happen to China's interest financially and economically in Afghanistan. We all know that Afghanistan is a mineral storehouse with lithium and other uh, rare earths, for example, which are very important to today's economy. Part of it will have to do with whether or not Afghanistan begins to implode because the leaders in Afghanistan are now cackling about how they pulled the fast one on U.S. imperialism, their reputed ally, by backing the Taliban. But since the Taliban has allies in Pakistan uh, that are not necessarily sympathetic to the, the Pakistani elite, uh, that bargain uh, may not work out. And in any case, uh, I think that it's too soon to say uh, whether or not uh, China will be able to uh, somehow <clears throat> carry through on its Belt and Road Initiative, because recall that just a few months ago, uh, you had religious zealots who killed the Chinese engineer in Pakistan, and that may be an auguring of things to come. So I would just ask your audience to stay tuned. Definitely, definitely. I mean, certainly a lot of shoes still to be seen as they drop or if they do as it pertains this whole issue. I mean, I just have to say, you know, how criminal it is about what has been done to the country of Afghanistan and its people as a result of U.S. imperialism and the U.S. government clearly staying in all this time simply to save face and so much bloodshed happening as a result. Well, be that as it may, we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary. On Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. Want to thank Dr. Gerald Horn so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with an all new episode. So, as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By any means necessary.